Part Eight of John Bold's Vineyard by Hubert de Castella. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty One, about the names of Victorian wines and other matters. The Société Philomatique of Bordeaux organized in eighteen eighty two a universal exhibition of wine. Even young Australia was invited to attend. Her wine growers answered the call eagerly. Victoria alone sent some hundreds of samples. Australian wines had been already made conspicuous in Paris, Vienna, and other exhibitions. England, being the best client of Bordeaux, a great interest was taken in the products of her colonies, regarded vaguely as possible competitors. This especially, as European vineyards were already at the time invaded by phylloxera. With her ordinary generosity, France treated Australia with the greatest fairness and courtesy. The commissioners of the colonies received everywhere with perfect bienveillance were shown and explained all that could be of interest to them or of advantage to their new country. As to the awards of the wine juries, the share of prizes allotted to Victoria alone was nine gold medals and twelve silver ones, without counting others. True, they were called progress medals, but except two gold medals entitled of merit, only such medals of progress were adjudicated to Hungary, to Algeria, and to many other countries. Altogether, Hungary received two gold medals of merit, three gold medals of progress, and four silver medals of progress. Algeria, two gold medals and five silver ones, all of progress. A sprightly notice on Australia, part of a review of the wines of the world, appeared in Bordeaux at that time. In it, Victorian growers were taunted with the names they give to their wines. They were said to be taking, in contempt of all truth, the names of the great wines of Europe to adorn their product. Here is the explanation of the practice. Very few growers call their wines by such names as Claret, Hock, Madeira, Port. Those who do so are mostly merchants, and if they prefix the word Australian, the generic appellation only indicates the kind of wine they offer to the consumer. This is more explanatory in any case than would be the name given to a piece of land held a few years ago by Aborigines. Australians give generally to their products the names of their vineyards, adding that of the grape from which the wine is made. This has sometimes been represented as confusing, but we think wrongly. The various kinds of wines retain always their individuality. Grown alongside of each other, the red Pinot of Burgundy and the Cabernet Sauvignon of Bordeaux give two absolutely distinct wines. In any portion of Australia, the first retains a special goût which is not found in the other. In putting the name of the grape on each distinct wine, the grower can ascertain which kind produces the wine most in favour of the public. He can increase his plantation with the best, graft the others, and by degrees the Australian vineyards will be brought to a desired unity. Kinds of similar nature and ripening at the same time are already found out to be advantageously blended. For example, the Cabernet with the Syrah, commonly called Hermitage in Australia, as it is the grape most cultivated in the celebrated wine districts of that name in France.
Tokai, which is one of the names we are blamed for assuming, is the abbreviation adopted in Australia to designate to the ferment Tokai, the grape from which the celebrated Tokai wine is made. That name on a Victorian bottle does not necessarily indicate an imitation of the Hungarian ambrosia. The special manufacture of this celebrated wine would be quite practicable in Victoria. No doubt it will be introduced some day. It consists in stripping the ferment vines from their leaves as soon as the grapes are ripe, and in allowing these to become shriveled on the branches. They are gathered when much reduced by the sun. The rotten berries are removed and the sound ones are placed in bags, filled afterwards so as to replace the evaporated juice of the perfumed ferment with fresh juice extracted from other grapes, left protected by their leaves. The bags are then trodden under the feet of the workmen. Here is a perfect method. In common sweet wines, the must is mostly boiled down like jam. By the Hungarian process, the gradual heat of the sun concentrates the aromas in a portion of the grapes, while the fresh juice brings the bloom and the other elements of good fermentation. The result is a nectar. Riesling, another name frequently found on Victorian labels, is a general appellation of a large tribe of grapes cultivated on the banks of the Rhine. It means delicate, aromatic. Especially, it is the name of the kind from which the Grand German hocks are made. With age, Australian Riesling augments in bouquet more than any other Australian wine. It retains in this respect the distinctive character of the parent plant. To ensure this priceless quality, the Australian vigneron must not allow his Riesling grapes to become overripe. He must gather them when in perfection of maturity, but no more. This he can obtain every year, whilst on the Rhine vignerons are satisfied with one good vintage out of six. Riesling proves the necessity of pruning vines according to the expansion required by each different species. We have a few acres of it, planted twenty years ago. During the first ten years, short pruned in Burgundian fashion, this kind never gave more than 150 gallons to the acre. The bunches came out but disappeared at blossoming time. Laid on wire trellises and long pruned, namely with a long branch left to each vine, the same area of ground now gives over 500 gallons to the acre. The review mentioned at the beginning of this chapter gives little encouragement to the Victorian vignerons and a poor account of their advancement. For many years to come, it says, they cannot dream of exporting wine to Europe otherwise than as curiosity. Australians doubt of nothing, and almost without any material, with vineyards in infancy, they have the childish pretension, etc. It concludes, to give a last proof of the little resources of Victorian viticulture, we may add, that cooperage is absolutely unknown in Australia. The wine growers keep their wines in brandy casks which they receive from France. Perhaps some description of a Victorian vineyard establishment which was complete at the time the above was written will be the best answer and will give a proper idea of Victorian enterprise. The cellars built of stone cover half an acre of ground. 
a square of 150 feet each way. A road passes through the middle, over the vaults, to allow of the grapes being brought above at vintage time to the fermenting and press rooms. The press rooms contain eight wine presses, the largest being imported at the cost of £170 from Amboise on the Loire, and being of the extreme size in use in France. Four more of the presses were imported from Europe. The others, copies of those found to be the best, were manufactured in Melbourne. In the fermenting rooms, 27 oak vats, a number sufficient to allow thorough fermentation of the grapes of a large acreage, each capable of holding from 800 to 1,200 gallons of must, are disposed around four elevated platforms. The grapes brought in carts from the vineyards, hoisted by machinery on these platforms, and preliminarily crushed in grape mills imported from France, are afterwards trodden with the naked feet, until fit to be thrown into the vats, the whole being so disposed that thirty tons of grapes, sufficient to make twenty thousand bottles of wine in a single day, can pass through all the necessary operations. For all the work of the vintage, gravitation is taken advantage of, the must or wine flowing from above, below, through gutta-percha pipes. The fermenting vats are all fitted with movable covers, according to the best principles. The mark, after the wine is made, is washed with water, and only this wash distilled by steam. If these condensed details fall under the notice of one versant in enology, he will judge whether we are without material for making our wines. The very spacious cellars below, partly excavated in the ground, cement-floored, ventilated from above to ensure an even temperature, contain over 400 casks, of which 50 hold from 1,000 to 1,500 gallons each, and 200, an average of 500 gallons each. Many of these large casks were made on the spot, a cooper's shed and a forge being attached to the establishment. Chapter 22. Duties on Wine The greatest obstacle to improvement in Australian vintages is the isolating line drawn by custom duties around each colony. The wine of the one, to enter another, must pay a duty equal to its original cost. For example, wine worth five shillings per gallon in Victoria has to pay five shillings duty to enter New South Wales, and vice versa, or rather more. New South Wales wine, worth five shillings per gallon, has to pay six shillings per gallon to enter Victoria. The result is prohibition. Whom does it serve? Nobody. Besides that, it brings nothing to the revenue of any state. This duty does not advance the wine industry in any particular province. It only lowers the values all round. What inducement is there for any man to excel, to grow the best kind of grapes, to eradicate those which experience proves inferior, to import machinery and men, to travel to gain information? Even if a grower succeed in producing the best wines, out of the three millions and a half present population of Australia, his market is limited, in any case to less than one-third. Take away the intercolonial duty, a field three times as large is open to everyone, 
and they can all compete for the favour of an extended public. Wines, like works of art, require to be compared one with another. It is only when the intercolonial duty on Australian wine shall have been removed, when the growths of the various colonies can be placed side by side to establish Australian reputations, that the industry may be expected to advance in the colonies first, outside perhaps afterwards. Before the time of Colbert, duties were levied in France on all merchandise passing from one part of the kingdom to another. A cask of wine sent across the country from Bordeaux to Paris had to pay duty in crossing the boundary of each province. Our intercolonial tariffs are simply revivals of medieval blindness, without the excuse of the ignorance which then prevailed. Suppose that similar fiscal regulations had continued in force up to this time and had prevented the wines of Burgundy and Bordeaux from being consumed anywhere in France, except in their respective provinces. Would Lafitte, Latour and Iquem have been brought to their present state of perfection? And in turn, if the consuming public of the world had not grown accustomed to the high value of these best wines, would the excellent ordinary Bordeaux command the prices they obtain? We do not pretend to compare ourselves with these models, but what took ages to achieve in former days is now accomplished in a short time. The position made for us here today is as oppressive as it was in the past to French provinces. We hear of a possible federation of the British Empire. No doubt it will come some day. The free introduction into John Bull's dominions of John Bull's pure wines of low strength would be, we imagine, amongst all other commodities, that which would be the greatest boon to the greatest number, at the same time that it would cause the less comparative diminution in the receipts from customs duties. High-class foreign wines consumed by the upper ten would continue to be imported. It would be to those who drink at present little or no wine, and consequently pay no duty, that the free trade of British light wines would be a welcome change. Long could be the apology on that subject. Diminution of alcoholism, the large increase of freights provided for British shipping, trades of various kinds inaugurated, purchasing powers of the colonies improved. But these questions would be beyond the frame of this opus school. One remains important to consider, the natural strength of Australian wines. Chapter 23 Natural Strength of Victorian Wines Spain and Portugal, and a certain class, mostly wine merchants in London and elsewhere, agitate now and then in favour of the standard for the introduction of wine into England at the shilling duty, being raised from 26 degrees of proof alcohol to 32 degrees. Mr Fallon of New South Wales joined one of these movements in 1875, assuming to do so on behalf of Australian growers. On that occasion, Australian wines were represented as being mostly from 28 degrees to 34 degrees of strength. Messrs Ald and Burton protested in the Times as Australian growers, themselves from Adelaide, one of the warmest wine-producing colonies. They quoted the report of the Secretary of Agriculture of Melbourne in 1873, 
giving it as the result of the analysis of several hundred samples collected from all the colonies, that the average strength of the wines of Western Australia was 23 degrees, of South Australia, 22 degrees, of New South Wales, 22 degrees, and of Victoria, 21 degrees. On his return to Australia, Mr Fallon asked the governments of New South Wales and of Victoria to support his contention. The chief inspectors of both colonies were sent to Albury on the Murray to collect at vintage time samples of musts which could prove the great strength of Australian wines and the necessity for an alteration of the alcoholic limit. The Victorian inspector reported as follows, I proceeded to Albury on the 20th of March and procured samples of the must of the grapes then ripe and being pulled for wine-making, which I had pressed out in my presence, placed in jars, and brought to Melbourne in my own custody. While at Albury, I met the Chief Inspector of Distilleries of New South Wales, who had been sent by the New South Wales Government for the same purpose, and who was making some stay in the district, and arranged with him that, as the bulk of the grapes were not fully ripe and I could not spare sufficient time to await their ripening, he should take samples of must in a similar manner and leave them in the custody of the superintendent of police, and I would bring them on a subsequent visit to Melbourne and test the alcoholic contents. All the value of the experiment rested on the condition that the musts collected should be fair specimens of must, fit for making wine, such could scarcely be the case. The district of Albury is two degrees of latitude more north than that of Melbourne. Besides that, it is so much warmer, being so far inland. The grapes are ripe there one month sooner than they are on the Yarra. The gathering should be finished at Albury, on the Murray, when it begins near Melbourne on the Yarra. In 1875, the year of the experiment, the vintage began on the Yarra on the 8th of March. Yet on the 20th of the same month, the grapes to be collected at Albury were considered as not sufficiently ripe, and orders were given to wait for maturity. If we observe that all those who were interested in viticulture in the Albury district were led to believe that the raising of the alcoholic standard would be advantageous to them, and that to obtain it they were to demonstrate the marvellous strength of their wines, is it not possible that only such grapes were squeezed in the experimental jars as could bring about the desired object? To test the average strength of the wines of a district, samples should be taken from large bulks, confidence being placed in the integrity of some men, at all events. All pure wines made from grapes gathered at a proper time will be found to range under the limit of 26 degrees of proof spirit. As I mentioned before, the two samples taken at Canyapella and at Echuca Vineyard, within three or four miles of the Murray, were found to be under 24 degrees. At the local shows of warm districts such as Rutherglen, scores of excellent samples from the large vineyards of Graham Brothers, of Morris of Sons, of Dr Muller and of so many others are exhibited under the category of light wines, all under 26 degrees. Some time ago, Mr Hardy of Adelaide, one of the most enterprising and intelligent of Australian growers, reported before a Melbourne commission that he was sending large quantities of wines to London, paying only the lesser duty. So did Mr Van der Biel, a wine grower of the Cape, on the same occasion. 
Aldana, Dalwood, Bukala, Porphyry, Tarbilk, the Emu Wines, enter London under 26 degrees of strength. It would be a blow to the production of good wines in the colonies to have the cheap introduction of alcoholised wines in England. It is much easier to fabricate strong decoctions than alimentary beverages. To make the latter, not only the time for gathering the grapes has to be opportune, but all the treatment afterwards requires skill and care. Fortified wines give little trouble. If a sugary must is likely not to keep, a portion may be distilled and added to the rest. Less bulky, safer to move about, of readier sale with certain classes, capable of more transformations. Fortified wines, if their introduction were made as cheap as that of the light ones, would soon form the bulk of your importation. Keep the high duty on alcohol, encouraged by a reduction of duty on light wines, the wine growers to give all their attention to the making of these, and you will have pure Australian wines retailed in London at one shilling per bottle. Lower the duty by admitting strong wines at the same rates as light ones, and you open the floodgate to alcohol. All interest to produce quality is gone. End of part eight.